Welcome to Impact with Dr. David Ireland, a show about diversity, racial reconciliation, and introspective discussion. Each week, he delivers coverage of current events and provides useful, relevant tools to help people confront these issues. Today's topic is the prayer life of Jesus. Now, here is your host, Dr. Ireland. Whenever I read the Bible, I'm always looking for patterns and principles, particularly in the life of Jesus. And one thing I notice is this. He spent quite a bit of time praying. Jesus praying. Who would have figured that Jesus had needs, desires, longings, goals? Because there's this conundrum, this it's almost, it's like a difficulty. How do you wrap your mind around it? At the same time, he is very God, God in flesh. And then he's very man. As a man, he had needs. He had longings, he had wants, he got hungry, he got tired. He, you know, there were particular things that had to be fulfilled in his life. That's where prayer came in. Prayer was the backbone of Jesus. And we're going on this 40-day spiritual journey focusing strictly on the prayer life of Jesus in the hope that we will glean principles that we can apply to our own prayer lives. Some may ask, well, why 40 days? Why not 19? Why not 36? Why not 3? Why 40? Is it an arbitrary number? No. When you read Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, you see that there's a number 40 represented at different times. For example, Moses went up to the mountain of the Lord and fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And he came down the mountain with the two stone tablets etched by the finger of God with the Ten Commandments. When the flood came on the earth and Noah was in the ark, the flood occurred for 40 days and 40 nights consecutively. When Goliath, this, this crazed giant, was making these declarations that he's going to do this and that to the army of Israel, he was making those declarations for 40 days, 40 nights. At the end is when David slew him. 40 throughout the Bible, it means deliverance, breakthrough, transformation, newness. So when we chose 40-day journey, what we're saying is that we want God to transform you, transform me, to bring deliverance to us, to bring a newness to our lives. So 40 is not an arbitrary number. It's a number that represents, it represents foundation of something brand new. Anybody who can stand for newness in their lives? Raise your hand. Anybody? Aren't you sick and tired of being sick and tired? You just want some new stuff to occur? You know, I, I, get, I got you. I got you. I understand. Now, so I ask the question, what would happen if we gleaned the principles that supported Jesus' prayer life and applied them to ours? Transformation will occur. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So the reason why Jesus was heard by God the Father, heard is a, is a word that simply means answered, his prayers were answered, was because when he offered up prayers, he wasn't cocky. He wasn't proud. He offered them up with a submissive attitude. It's almost like when you see 
two dogs meet and one dog lays down on the floor on its back and opens up its legs and shows its, its most vital organs to the other dog. And you say, what is that? It's an act of submission. The dog laying on the floor is saying to the other dog, I mean you no harm. I mean you no threat. I'm in submission to you. You're my boss. You're the leader. You're the alpha dog. Jesus, when he prayed, he was saying, God, you're the alpha. Now, rub your hands together. Let's get into the word. All right, all that's an appetizer. I'm ready now for a meal. Don't get full on the appetizer. Luke 11 verse 1 says this. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Man, I wish I was there. What was going on? This disciple, unnamed, we don't know who he is. Something was erupting in his soul when he was watching Jesus pray. Prayer is ordinary dialogue of a person to God. There's no religious words, no scripted speech. You're not a robot. You're not some automaton. It's just you talking to God. When this disciple saw how Jesus was talking to God the Father, and he used the word to describe that talk, prayer, he knew that somehow this was not a horizontal conversation. It was a vertical one. And the conversation was so holy, was so sacred that he knew it wasn't based solely on Jesus' needs. It was based on the relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. So prayer is all about relationship. Start there. It's all about relationship. Don't start with need. Start with relationship. He knew when Jesus finished. I don't know if Jesus was kneeling. I don't know if he was walking to and fro. As I pray, sometimes I walk and I pace in my room and I'm praying. I, I don't know if it was that or if he was standing with his head bowed. It's not about the posture. When Jesus finished praying, this disciple, you can almost hear it in the, in, in the voice of the scripture. It's almost as if he just, <laughs> just choked up a little, <laughs> built up his courage. Lord, can you teach he didn't even say, teach me. Can you, can, he didn't want to be rejected. He had to broaden it. Can you teach us to pray? In other words, I have some things that I want to tell God, and I don't know if I really get through. There's some things that I have that I want to talk to God about, and, and I don't want to mess it up. And I, I see the way you pray. There's no guessing with you as if you were heard on high, as if God turned his back. You didn't guess. 
I want that same kind of confidence. So, Lord, can you teach us to pray? And in case he needed to strengthen his request a little, he said, like John taught, John the Baptist said, it's like John taught his disciples. In other words, John taught his guys. Can you teach your guys? You know what this passage tells me? Prayer can be taught. I don't mean the rote words or rote or mechanical prayers like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the ability to talk to God. You can learn how to do it. And you don't have to be anybody special. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have been a follower of Jesus for, you know, as the old timers say, umpteen years. All you got to do is have a relationship with God and want to keep the relationship with God healthy and alive. And this disciple says, Lord, teach us to pray. So from this, what I see is a whole host of principles that we can apply to our lives so readily. What I see in what formed or fueled Jesus' prayer life is this. He knew the value of prayer. At every critical turn, every major decision, Jesus prayed first. When he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, it was to pray. Because his ministry was about to be launched and he wanted to launch it with power and strength and focus and clarity and purposefulness. And the scripture tells us there in Luke 4 that when he left the wilderness, he, he came out with power. Prayer works. Then he had another major juncture in his relationship and his ministry focus. And that was he needed to choose some disciples that he can equip so that when he goes back to God the Father in heaven, he has a team that can make things happen. Luke 6 tells us what Jesus did before making any decisions. The scripture says in verse 12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now that word apostles, we don't use it much in our English today, but it's a very substantive word in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written. That word apostle is the Greek word apostolos, which means someone sent on a definite mission, definite commissioning, definite authority. Apostles are the ones that God will send them into all kinds of covert missions and they can get things done. Their temperament, their gift, their giftings, their makeup, they're on assignment and they're the ones who build and plant churches and build and plant organizations that help reach people all over the globe for Christ. These gifts are very important. But watch what Jesus did. He knew he had to make a major decision. I got hundreds of disciples. At that time, there were hundreds of them following him. And by the way, the word disciple means a disciplined follower of Christ. 
So they're disciplined. They're, they're solid. They're not flaky. They're not wishy-washy. These are hard, you know, solid men and women that are just deliberate and faithful and consistent and morally upright. And their, their, their attributes reflected Jesus being their guide and leader and savior. And, and so Jesus went to the mountain, and the scripture says, to pray all night. Let me ask you by a show of hands. How many of you have, how many of you have ever prayed all night? Raise your hand if everyone been on all-night prayer. Okay? Thank you. You may put your hands down. Let me ask the question the other way now. How many of you have never prayed all night? Never been to an all-night prayer? Don't be embarrassed. This is something that I want to lead you on. In a couple of months, I'm going to say, hey, family, we're going to have an all-night prayer. And you say, why do I need to pray all night? Why do I need to do that? I need to sleep. Yeah, 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 you're right, you do need to sleep. But there are some things that only will occur through a protracted, elongated, focused time of prayer. Jesus valued prayer. And he chose to pray all night. Why? Because this was a major decision. He better get it right. If he didn't get it right, we would not be here today. And so when Jesus had to go to God the Father after his death, burial, and resurrection, he needed these 12 emissaries, apostles that would then go far and wide to all the earth and preach the gospel, having it right and not mixed with all kinds of crazy ideology and philosophy. He needed the gospel to be pure and powerful as he delivered it. And you may say, well, one of the 12, that was Judas. Yeah, you're right. He needed to pick someone that had the propensity to be a betrayer. Judas was, because he needed to be betrayed to get to the cross. And even that choice of a betrayer was the right choice. I mean, I want you to see that prayer was very critical to Jesus. The success of his mission depended upon the right and accurate selection. And the Bible says at the morning when he came down from the mountain, he called the disciples to him. And he chose 12 of them. That means there was a whole, more than, whole lot more than 12. Now I want you to think about it. Visualize it now. He's coming down a mountain. He's down at the base of the mountain, the foot of the mountain. And then he says, everybody, come here. Come here. The whole crowd comes. Just like I'm looking at all of you. This crowd. And imagine if I pick 12. You, you, back there. Yeah, you, with the beard. Yeah, you, over there. Yeah, with the white shirt. Yeah, you, yeah, yep, you. Me, yeah, 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 you. All 12, come here. From now on, you will be known as apostles. Everybody else that wasn't selected, some will pout. How come I wasn't picked? I've been with you longer. I'm more gifted than that guy. That's Peter. Peter's up there. And, and you got Matthew. That guy's a crook. How could he? He's a tax collector. You picked him. See, Jesus... He knew that there may be some flack as to who wasn't selected, and he needed to make sure his decisions were so on point that without a shadow of a doubt, he can resist the naysayers. All my life as a boy, I wanted to be an engineer. My dad ordered Popular Mechanics magazine for me and my younger brother, Norman, who wanted to be an engineer as well. And I became an engineer. So did Norman. 
And fast forward now, six years into my engineering career, God started to deal with my heart and said, David, I'm calling you to be a pastor, a minister. Man, it was tough to make that decision. All that schooling, all that studying, and my love of engineering. And I remember making that decision. And I was married at the time. Marlon and I had just been married at that time. And uh, I think you know, we got, I got married when I was 22, and she was none of your business years old. And so at that time, I was uh, you know, 25, and so we were married a couple of years. And she didn't marry a preacher. She married an engineer. So uh, I said to her, I said, honey, I, I'm confused as to what I should do with my life. And so we talked about it. And we prayed about it. We talked about some more. We prayed some more. And I remember I made the leap into ministry. And I remember my parents saying to me, David, you did something foolish. Why did you do that? All these years, since you were a boy, you wanted to be an engineer. And all this schooling and all this money towards your schooling and education. Why? You did something foolish, son. And I have to absorb that. These are my parents. I love them. They didn't, they didn't see my decision and couldn't jive with it. Fast forward, Christ Church began. Fast forward two years into the formation of Christ Church. We had some special service that day. And I invited my mom and dad. They came from New York to New Jersey. We're meeting in the multi-purpose room of this Episcopal Church. That's where we met on Sunday afternoons at 4 o'clock. And there they are sitting there. And I remember teaching, and at the end of my teaching, I gave this invitation, if you don't know Jesus in the way the Bible describes, you need to make a decision to serve him. And I prayed with people, and then I said, if you've just prayed with me, raise your hand. And there was mom, there was dad, hand raised. And I remember these words some weeks later, David, thank you for not listening to us. You made the right decision. And I'm saying that because it took prayer. I love what Corey Ten Boom, the, the, the famed Christian author and the one who hid the Jews from Nazi Holocaust in World War II, she wisely asked this question. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? In other words, do you use prayer to guide you? Or do you use prayer just to pull you out of the foxhole emergency? All of a sudden you want to pray. Never see you before. Never talk to God before. Now of a crisis, I need prayer. So, Jesus, he valued prayer. And by the way, that's why we're wearing this wristband that simply says, my prayers equal their future. We're saying, kids, I, I, I got to have you in my heart. I got to... When I put, look at this wristband, I offer a petition. A petition is just a prayer that you just ejaculate to God. God, bless my kids. God, bless my neighbor's kids. And you go on about your business. God, you bless Susan as she's going through puberty. Help her to come through unscathed as she enters into womanhood feeling secure. God, bless my son Jason as he goes through his changes. Help him with, with calculus as he's studying it. 
That's why we're reading this book, Reset. We're saying, let's just, let's just find out how to get good habits in prayer. Simple book, you can read it in an hour, but let's just take 20 days if you want to take two minutes a day. Let's just do that. See, Jesus knew the value of prayer. And when he valued it, he chose a mountainside. Throughout the Bible, Jesus always prayed in one of three places. On the mountain, by the sea, or in the garden. Now, he, he prayed all the places, but when he talked about long prayers, protracted prayers, one of those three places. It doesn't mean that you have to go to one of those three places. It just means that Jesus had a favorite place to pray. So you need to establish a favorite place where you pray. Where do you pray? What's your favorite spot? See, in other words, set a place of prayer. You may say, well, look, you don't know. I, I'm, my life, I, I have a small place. Uh, everywhere I turn to someone. Do you know about Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who were the founders of the Methodist Church? Susanna had 19 children. 19. I can't even count that high when it comes to kids. 19. Uh, I started stammering. 19? But seldom did she miss her time with God in prayer. She had a, a set place of prayer. They said, what kind of house did she have where you can get away from your kids? Her house wasn't that big. What Susanna Wesley used to do was tie an apron around her waist. And it was, when it was her time to pray, she would throw her apron over her head. And she taught her children, whenever you see mother with her apron over her head, she's in her place of prayer. Never disturb her. Don't tell me that you don't have a place. You may say, well, I don't have an apron. Get an old Nike t-shirt. Even the slogan is motivational. Just do it and throw it over your head. And there you go. Come on, if we're going to applaud the Lord, let's applaud the Lord. What we learn is that Jesus valued prayer. What we also learn from the text is this. He, that is Jesus, experienced validation in prayer. See, validation is essential to having a flourishing inner life. That's what it does. See, validation, it's getting feedback from others. Feedback that goes like this. It makes me feel this way. What I do and what I say matters to you. It doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with me or agree with my op opinion, but validation, it conveys to me, you hear me. You see me, you think of me, you thank me. Validation means that I, I really matter to you. Fathers, one of the greatest things you can ever give your kids as a gift is the gift of validating them. Johnny came home at the end of the semester, grades wasn't that good, showed his dad his report card. And the dad said something that was so, so transformative. He said to Johnny, he said, son, I know you worked really hard this semester. And these grades, they don't match your level of effort. Thank you for the effort that you, that you expended. Let's tweak methods now. So the next semester, your grades reflect your effort. Instead of walking out of the room like, 
feeling worthless and no good. Johnny walks out with his shoulders squared saying that my dad validated me. Even though I didn't live up to a performance that was so great. Now, wives, you need to validate your husbands. Husbands, you need to validate your wives. When you validate one another, it makes your marriage a fear proof. See, as the one guy tells me, he calls the young ladies that are not married at his Peruvian restaurant, Chiquitas. He said, he said that the Chiquitas won't get in and get access to your husband, not when he's walking around protected by your validation. I don't know what he called the guys, so I'll just say this. The guys won't get to your wives when you validate them. Now, we live in a broken world. We're broken people. And we human beings, including me, we just don't validate people enough. And so we walk around with this, this deficit of validation. And we must then learn how to get validation from God. I call it divine validation. That's what prayer does. In John 11, verse 41, Jesus introduces that entire concept to us. He says, after the stone had been rolled aside, that's the stone that was blocking the grave of, of, of Lazarus that Jesus was about to call from the dead. The scripture says, Jesus looked up towards heaven and prayed, Father, I thank you for answering my prayers. I know that you always answer my prayers. But I said this so the people here would believe you sent me. See, what Jesus was saying is this, Father, you always listen to me. You see my worth. You see my, my, my need for your guidance. You hear me. I matter to you, God. This validation is so important. And if you don't pray and spend time in prayer, you're missing out on divine validation. See, we all have these big gaping holes in our hearts. And in prayer, before you even request a thing from God, there's God validating, affirming you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. And you walk out of that prayer time feeling as if, man... I know I botched this up. I know I didn't get that right. I know I have these needs. I know I'm not totally together over here, but my heavenly dad, he's madly in love with me. I, I didn't know that prayer was a gateway to this divine validation. Our church first began. I didn't know how this hole in my heart was affecting me. And the hole was that my dad never really fathered me. We never had those father-son chats about anything significant. So it was this big hole in my heart. And I didn't really know how to, how do I shepherd people? Because I didn't know that the hole in my heart was affecting my ability to shepherd them. So I remember I used to, I used to pray regularly, God, bring spiritual fathers into my life that can help me in those areas of deficiency. And I'd pray it month after month, year after year. And I think it was about the third year 
into pastoring this tiny little church, Christ Church. I went into prayer and I said, God, bring fathers into my life. And I remember the Holy Spirit saying to me that morning in prayer, David, stop praying for a father and be a father. Everything changed. I didn't know I had the wherewithal, the gifts, the innate ability to provide that fathering grace, not only to my children, but to the people that God brought into my sphere to provide care for them as a pastor. My orientation shifted 180 degrees. I stopped looking external for this validation because the validation came vertical from God in my heart. And I changed my, my, my prayer. And so I, I, I started praying, God, help me to be that father that you've called me to be. Help me to be that man that cares and leads and guides and nurtures and to grow in that capacity. I want you to see, see prayer. Jesus had this prayer, had prayer and he taught prayer. Prayer, it validates who you are. There are many people, they do the wrong things because they have no validation. They're, they're making wrong choices, connecting with wrong people, going down wrong paths because they're in search of someone who will say, hey, do I matter? Do I have value? Oprah Winfrey says, I've talked to nearly 30,000 people on this show. And all 30,000 had one thing in common. They all wanted validation. I will tell you that every single person you'll ever meet shares that common desire. See, Jesus He's real about this thing in prayer. See, prayer is not just, it's not some religious exercise. No, that's not prayer. Matthew 6 verse 5, Jesus debunked that notion when he said, teaching his disciples, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. See, the people that Jesus was calling hypocrites, there was a Jewish sect of people in that day called Pharisees. Very strict. Very snooty. They thought they were better than other people. And to show you and to show us that Jesus was saying, look, when those guys pray, they're not really praying. It's not true prayers. They're not connecting with God because they want to make a show of this thing. So they pray out loud in the synagogue using all these big religious highfalutin words. Oh, Heavenly Father, Almighty God, look down. And Jesus is saying, these guys... They just want people to see them because they're so messed up inside and devoid of real heavenly divine validation, they only search for it with people. When you see them in the marketplace, 
the long flowing gowns and they're walking about in the marketplace and they're making sure everybody sees them and they're trying to, you know, to, to portray how pious they are, how holy they are, how reverent they may be. Jesus says, those guys, <laughs> those guys are a bunch of hypocrites. That word hypocrite is a strong word. In first century, it means they're actors on the stage. They speak from behind a mask so no one sees the real, the real person. Jesus said, those guys, they're hypocrites. They, that's not real prayer. Prayer, you want real prayer that connects with God, that causes you to experience validation? This way you don't get distracted and waylaid and go down the wrong path and connect with the wrong people. You want to have that kind of prayer where God says you matter, your words matter, let me answer you, let me meet your needs, let me bless you, let me give you breakthrough, let me give you answers. You want that kind of prayer? Jesus says, go into your room, your set place of prayer. Close the door. Private time. Talk to your father. Though you don't see him, he hears you. And he will reward you, which means he'll answer your prayers. Jesus says that kind of prayer is what is providing validation. He experienced validation in prayer. When I read about the prayer life, and I said, God, why did Jesus have such a powerful prayer life? I know that he knew the value of prayer and he experienced validation in prayer. But what I also discovered is this. He found victory through prayer. See, there's one thing when we just talk. I'm not just talking about prayer. I'm talking about, I know that God answers prayer. He gets no glory out of unanswered prayers. Can you imagine God up in heaven talking to the archangel Michael? Hey, Mike. Today, I didn't answer 5,255,000 prayers. Mike gives God a high five. Way to go. Same way a teacher, a teacher, if you're a teacher in the school system, whether in higher academia or you're an elementary school teacher, you don't get any accolades because you failed the class. Yeah, man, giving each other a fist bump. I know the teacher. What, how many did you fail? Well, I left five students back. I left them back this year. I failed 20 students in my physics class. Fist bump. Way to go. It's a reflection on you are not good. It's not a reflection on the students. A teacher's job is to instruct, to guide. So you find out where the students are. You go there, right where they are, in their knowledge, and then you take them to where they need to go. That's what, that's what a teacher does, a guide. So you can't just go there and say, look, this kid's foolish. Yeah, you're an idiot. Uh, I'm out of here. So can you imagine, you know, God says, hey, I didn't answer 55,000 prayers out of the township of Rockaway, New Jersey, to, you know, today. God said, yeah. There's no glory God gets out of unanswered prayers. God gets glory out of answered prayers. John 15, verse 7 says this. Stay joined to me, Jesus is teaching. Stay joined to me and let my teachings become part of you. Then you can pray for whatever you want and your prayer will be answered. Now, that's pretty powerful. Jesus is saying, look, I, I, you know, you, you let my word go inside of you, percolate inside, grow inside. Then you have my values. You share, share my will. You share my interests. You're in sync and in harmony with my goals or my desires. Then when you pray about anything you pray for, anything, 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 Jesus, anything you pray for, watch the caveat, watch the caveat, 
stay joined to me and let my teachings become part of you. Then anything, 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 anything you pray for, your prayer will be answered. Now, if you say, okay, God, I, I read John 15, 7, and before you walk out of the room, you say, God, I want five Mercedes Benz and two Beamers. Each of them different colors for different days of the week. On Monday, I ride the white one. On Tuesday, I ride the gray one. And then Friday, I'm in a sporting mood, so red is my color. And you pray, and he's like, man, God doesn't hear prayers. He, this whole thing, prayer thing is a hoax. No, your issue is that God's word is not inside. His, you're not staying close to him. I'm not suggesting you can't pray for a beamer. You can pray for a beamer. But, but if you can't give people a ride in your beamer, if you can't pay for your beamer, if you don't have a driver's license, so what's the motivation behind your beamer? And if your motivation is not pure, then you just, that's not the prayer. Just like, if you're single, you better know, don't force the issue. If you're dating someone, I know he looks, that's the guy, that's my guy. Six to 200 pounds, chiseled look. You say, Jesus. I know this is the one. And then you're forcing the issue. And I'm saying, don't force an issue. You have to ask, God, is he the one for me? And the flip side, sir, you, you're, you got your eyes on that Shakita. She is 36, 24, 36. I mean, I'm not talking about geometry. She, oh, everything's right in form. She looks like a runway model, gorgeous. And, you, and I said, did you pray about it? So what do I need to pray? Did you, did you see how she looks? <laughs> and you're making that the issue. And I'm saying, no, don't make that the issue. You need victory comes when you're in sync with the will and purpose of God. Picking the wrong one, marrying the wrong one, and forcing something to work. It's not going to get you where you want to be because you're going to regret it two weeks in. You got to pray for the right one. The single guy was taking vacation in Hawaii, worked hard. Native American guy, he's sitting there in the plane. And it just so happened, this person sitting next to him that came right in. Oh, five foot nine, beautiful, curvaceous. She sat right next to him. His heart started beating because he's saying, this is the one. This is, I know this is the one. Look at providence. Look at providence. And his heart's palpitating. I mean, he's just almost beating out of his chest. And, he, and, and then he, as a plane, plane takes off, they strike up a conversation. About half an hour into the flight, he feels as if they've been having such a rapport, he can pop this question to her that'll get the conversation to go deeper. He said, I, I noticed that you don't have a wedding band. Are you single? She said, yeah, I'm single. He said, can I ask this very personal question? She said, oh, okay, go ahead. He said, if you ever were to get married, what kind of guy would you marry? She said, I love Native Americans. 
Now, this, mind, mind you, she's white, blonde hair, blue eyes, European. And she, and he, she says, I love Native Americans. They're so strong. Hey, man, he's sticking his chest out. He flexes his muscle a little bit. He just felt, man, this is it. This is it. This is it. And, and then as she finished describing that descriptor of her husband, she said, but I also love the good old boys that are in Texas. They drive their pickup trucks with a gun rack on the back. I just love those guys. And then she finished up. She said, but I love Jewish guys. They're very smart, very clever, good with money. I just love those guys. And then she said, what's your name? And he said, my name is Geronimo Rubenstein, but my friends call me Bubba. I mean, the, the idea is that he's trying to make everything work. Everything work. You need to know what the will of God is and stick to that. Victory is when you're syncing up with God in regards to his will. <laughs> Don't steal that joke. Leave it right here. <laughs> but I do want to pray with you today. Would you stand with me, please? Thanks for joining us this week on Impact with Dr. David Ireland. Take a moment and visit davidireland.org where you can subscribe to this podcast so you never miss a moment. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, feel free to leave a rating, tell a friend, and tune in next week for another edition of Impact with Dr. David Ireland.